Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gabriela Santos, as I mentioned, is here with us from JPM Funds. Uh, she's the uh, chief global strategist, and uh, we're happy to have her here. She's drinking hot coffee because <laughs> uh, the whole East Coast is freezing Absolutely today. Absolutely freezing. I was noticing it's like that. Winter. Uh, uh, <laughs> hockey season. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Tom Keene has wandered in the studio in his Montreal Canadiens jersey. Um, he's uh, he's ready for hockey season. Uh, when you look at uh, the markets have been down, up, down, but not going rocketing higher as they have been as we get deeper and deeper into tax reform. Is that because people are holding their breath uh, at this point or has sentiment kind of turned? This was a discussion that we were having on uh, Bloomberg Television yesterday on What Did You Miss? Um, has sentiment turned? Are we now thinking maybe it won't pass and so you got to start pricing that in or is it too early? So I think one of the first questions is, is corporate tax reform priced in already? We would say not really, no. Um, that the rally we've seen so far this year has been much more about the trends, the good global trends we're seeing in terms of growth and earnings, uh, as well as stability in energy, as well as the dollar, rather than some huge expectation of corporate tax reform happening. So I don't think it's an un unwind of expectations around tax or anything like that. It could be something just innocuous, like investors wanting to take a little bit of profit off the table, right? Especially no. in sectors that have done super well this year, like technology, which is the sector, for example, that was down yesterday, rather it, than something really, really bad. I'm also wondering, it, it, a lot is going to get wrapped up in December. We have tax reform. Mm -hmm. It will either pass or it won't you know, get, could get delayed. But you've got the possibility of a government shutdown. And you get the debt ceiling, which will be attached to that, even if it's not solved. And it's the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And it's been a heck of a year. So yeah. are people actually going to invest in December? Or are we going to start pe seeing people get cautious and say, I'm going to do what That's Gabriella a really good just question. said. And, and I'm going to kind of yeah, you know, take the brilliant, month off. Brilliant. I'm not sure. I think it depends on, on where you've been so far this year. If, if you've been in the market the entire year, maybe you do kind of trim down a little bit. Your your position has yeah. probably gotten a little bit too big by now, right? We're up 15%. Um, but for those investors that still haven't participated in the market, well, and there are actually a lot of them, maybe there is still a desire yeah. to get in the market. But we talk about sell in May and go away. And Mike, your question's dead on. I mean, sell you know before Thanksgiving and run, run, run. Let's come back to that in a minute. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, in, in institutions, people that are behind, is there a level of panic this year that I need to catch up in six weeks? I've never bought mm -hmm. that song and dance, but it's always there. Do people actually do that? For institutional clients, I would say, especially when it comes to <laughs> equities, they've been pretty well positioned going into the year. What makes me think much more about people wanting to actually chase or, or participate in this performance is much yeah. more in the individual level where so many investors for the last eight, nine years have still not participated in the rally. So I think there's okay. this sense of, oh, my gosh, I'm not participating in this enthusiasm so, in this rally. Mike, the way this works is I was on the West Side uh, two nights ago and I walked in the Apple store because I walked by it and there was the iPhone X and I held it in my hand. Wow, wow, wow. So do I come out of the triple leveraged all cash fund and like, you know, double margin Apple 
to get myself to January to December thirty first. <laughs> well, the, the is that a good idea? The problem is, is it's going to take every penny you made this year to buy an iPhone ten. That's <laughs> true. At, at, at the cost. So <laughs> Doug Cass is going in Florida, top of market right there, Tom. We're starting to hear. It's interesting because you're talking about all these people who haven't participated. And of course, the old saw is once retail comes in, it's over. But uh, you're starting to see some of the pros talk about or. Not necessarily a a correction or anything like that, but that maybe we're going to top out for a little while. Uh, I noted, uh, and I have the, I brought the story in here somewhere, and I can't find it right now. But um, people are looking at uh, uh, high yield and uh, how it's kind of rolled over, and they say that's a sign that the stock market is going to start coming to an end as well. Are you seeing any of those tea leaves that you're starting to say, hey, maybe uh, there's something to look at here? Coming to an end, no. Uh I mean, it, it's always about the kind of earnings growth we're seeing, which is still incredibly solid, even pre any sort of corporate tax reform implementation, which is which is really a great sign. Um, and that's really the fundamental driver of the market, right? So as long as the economy keeps growing, earnings keep growing, the market should continue to grind higher. But I do think that we should be expecting some sort of correction. Absolutely, right? The average going back to 1980 would be to have a 10% correction every single year. And the maximum we've had this year has been 3%. So definitely a correction would be very possible. Probability is high. But we don't think this is the end of, of what we think is a much more secular bull market. Do you think because it's been so long that if we did get a correction, it could be magnified by fear? Um, you know, people who've seen nothing but stocks go up for a long time start to get nervous and and pull back more than they otherwise would? Or are the pros going to come in and save us and say, oh, time to buy? <laughs> well, we'll do our best. But uh, I, I do think that sentiment is is has improved a lot this year. Uh, I think whenever we got a pullback last year, the year before, even 2014, there was this feeling that maybe there's a recession around the corner. Maybe there's something I should be worried about with emerging markets. So the pullbacks felt very, very rapid and, and fearful. Uh, and where we are today is much better comfort with the global economy, with stability. Yeah. And so I actually think that sentiment is a little bit better this yeah. time around going into any sort of volatility or correction. I'm going to protect you from your general counsel. I know Mr. Diamond hangs on every word you say. Can you buy the banks here? The financial sector is one of our favorite sectors. Why? Um, along with technology. So there's a laundry list. Give me, give me the top. Come on. <laughs> top. Tell me about the – Mike McKee wants to know about the yield curve. All right. So we've got – for the financial <clears throat> sector, we've got a growing economy. So credit growth should continue being decently good. Number two, we do believe that the yield curve is going to stop flattening at this incessant rate we've been mm -hmm. seeing for the past couple of weeks, which has been a little bit of a headwind here in the short term. Um, and then lastly, there is this underlying current of smarter regulation that I don't know is getting necessarily the well, the due amount of airtime. Which curve, to help our pros here, two tens of vanilla curve, which curve do you look at to gauge financial forecasting? We look at the two tens. Uh, you look at the two tens to decide what Bank of America is doing or Deutsche <laughs> Bank or whatever? We look at it as, as an indication <clears throat> of what's happening with the yield curve. Mm -hmm. um, and what we have been seeing for the past couple of weeks is a very – what to us seems like a very surprising flattening of the yield curve. Yeah. Now, we don't think that this is all of a sudden going to go to a completely flat or even inverted yield curve, as I was saying. We do think that this is due for a pause and a bit of a reversal here. Um, before we uh, let you go very quickly – new Fed coming in next year causing you to think about anything differently? 
Not at the moment. Uh, we do think we'll uh, continue with the kind of pace we've seen this year. 2018 should look pretty similar unless we get some sort of overheating in the economy or, or big turn in inflation, which we don't expect. Yeah. Um, if we don't, three rate hikes continuing yeah. to wind down the balance sheet. I've got a wonderful email that just came in that disagrees with you. And this is the debate right. over earnings-driven market versus valuation-driven market. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a great nuance. You have to come mm-hmm. back and we have to talk about we'll that. Talk about that. And this that has been be an earnings-driven market, though, this this year. This would be a great conversation, Michael. We get Gabriela Santos with Douglas Cass. All right. Put <laughs> her, has a differing view. Put her down for a couple hours and we'll, we'll yeah. get the two Doug of them. Doug Cass and uh, Gabriela Santos together would be smart, smart, smart. They live in two different worlds. Thank you, Mr. Cass for that observation. Well-researched. Joining us now, Stephen Ratner with Willow Advisors. We should point out that he uh, manages uh, the 401k of Michael Bloomberg, who <laughs> has a modest amount to do with this. Yeah, he's got his twelve thousand seven hundred dollars a year in his 401k. Yeah, well, they wanted to, they wanted to adjust that in tax you know, reform. This is a, a limited liability corporation, I guess. No, it's a limited partnership. Uh, yeah, Bloomberg LP so, is in fact he, a limited partnership. Does he partnership. qualify for pass through? Well, this <laughs> is a, a subject of not inconsequential interest. Uh, we'll have to see how the regs are written, well, but I mean, it's yeah, not we, out of the question. We don't want to talk about. Obviously, no, we do not. Michael's money, but it does matter to a lot of people who are not small businesses. Well, the whole thing is is a little bit crazy because they're going to have to try to write these rules and somehow distinguish between all the hedge funds, all the private equity guys, all the people, uh, present company included, perhaps, who could just simply turn ourselves into a pass-through to beat the system. I want to back up. You were the car czar, et cetera. I know you hate that phrase. I don't care. You were the car czar. <laughs> and you had to herd cats. Across many institutions in Washington. If you were the tax czar now, given your tangible real world experience in the trenches of the Beltway, what would you do as tax czar? Well, for, uh, first of all, I was able to succeed as car czar because I didn't have to deal with Congress. Taxes, you have to go to Congress. But let's assume, uh, let's assume you don't. Look, there's no doubt that the tax code is riddled with problems. The corporate side of the tax code creates all the wrong incentives, all kinds of disincentives to invest here, to locate here. You would certainly change that around. The personal side, there's a certain number of deductions, uh, a certain number of loopholes. But, you know, the 86 Tax Act did a pretty good job, still amazingly enough, of cleaning out the worst of the shelters. So I would, I would uh, eliminate a bunch of individual deductions. I would fix the corporate tax code. I would try to lower rates, but I would do it on a deficit-neutral basis. On a de- I, knew, I knew you were going You there. knew I was going to say that. I have not seen a single article, Tax Policy Center, Joint Tax, all the other experts on this. That's a pipe dream to be deficit-neutral, right? Well, why is that a pipe dream? I'm asking. You, I'm, I'm asking you. No, look, it's not a pipe dream. It's easy enough to do. You just have to not cut some taxes as much. And and the, the problem is that the deficit's been going is going up at the moment on the order of, let's say, very round numbers, $100 billion a year. We're on the wrong end of the expansionary cycle. This is not a time for a stimulative tax cut. It's just not. Mike, Mike McKee dropping in here, please. Yeah, I, I want to follow on that because <clears throat> obviously you spend all your time looking at financial markets. What's the danger that we see interest rates rise more than they should because? <clears throat> you've 
uh, raise the deficit significantly, yeah. and then you run into a problem where you're working against yourself. Well, well, by definition, interest rates will rise more than they otherwise would have. It has to. It's just math. But what the but what the sort of uh, uh, conservatives, for lack of a better word, want you know want in fact is a tighter Fed policy and a looser fiscal policy. That that was the recipe back in the Reagan years, and it's the recipe again today. I don't particularly see the argument for piling on more debt that we're going to leave to our kids. Okay, but but within that tandem, to review, they want a bigger deficit. What do you mean by tighter Fed policy? They want more rate hikes? They want a more restrictive monetary policy? Uh, sure. I mean, if you look at the Taylor rule and but what John But I thought John it Taylor, was low-rate Donald. It, it, it's low-rate Janet, low-rate Donald. It's, but Janet is leaving, and Donald absolutely is a low-rate guy. But I, I, didn't say, I didn't say Donald. I said the conservatives, the traditional sort okay. of fairly hard-right conservatives. They hated the QE. They want that gone and done. They think rates should have gone up sooner. Even Kevin Warsh. Do they a, have power in Steve Ratner's Washington? Do the conservatives have a voice? No. What's what's so interesting is that the president made his choice, and uh, and I wrote a piece about it. One of the one, uh, much to my happy surprise, he actually picked the right guy, and he made he took a stand against Mike Pence, who wanted John Taylor, against the traditional conservatives who wanted uh, a John uh, a Kevin Warsh or John Taylor type, and he picked someone who was you know not that different from Janet Yellen, and that's great. Well, where do they uh, go from here, do you think? Do, do they continue with traditional, um, well-known kinds of people, or do they put a Trump agenda in there into the Fed? Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. You know, sometimes it becomes like Noah's Ark, where if you give one faction somebody, then you have to give the other faction somebody to that keep it That was how Jay Powell got on to the Fed in that's, the first exactly, place. Exactly, that's exactly right. They need a Republican right. to go with. You need a Republican. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But the chairman, as you know, uh, uh, the last time a chairman was outvoted was Bill Miller in 1970-something or another. I was actually covering it back then. So the chairman wields enormous power and enormous uh, influence. Don't you hate it, Tom, that he knows more about reporting than we do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know more, but I did it for a good while. He knows who G. William Miller is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people. But this is, that brings up a good point, Steve Rackner. The collective memory of Washington is about one election ago. They really don't have a memory of Volcker. They don't have a memory of Nobody's heard of G. Mr. William Miller. Miller. Yes. They don't have a memory of McChesney Martin. I mean, there's, there's really no historical memory. That is, that, that is true. On tax reform, what should we look for next? We've had the Senate trot out. What are you looking for into the weekend, of the Sunday talk shows, and then into the holiday season? I'm not sure too much. Well, they certainly hope to pass something in the holiday season. Now, look, what we're obviously looking for is to see uh, indiv individual senators and then the Republicans who are in the bluer states where there are state and local tax deduction uh, issues there, the Peter, well, Peter King has made his position clear, but to watch these swing voters because it's going to be like health care. They're going to have to be counting votes, and they're going to have to be counting votes in the House this time as well as the Senate. The House wasn't so hard for them last time, but there are a number of Republicans. Some people say it's 20, some 30, some, 30, some 40. We don't know. Who, uh, who could well be influenced by the SALT issue. And then on the Senate side, it's, you know, it's a bit of an erector set. You've got, you've got, to, you've got to assemble 50, and if, you, and if one drops out, you've got to find another one to put in their place. So the trade-offs between the estate tax and the other kinds of things, uh, Corker and his deficit concerns, they're going to have to try to juggle all that and come up with 50 votes, and that's what we're going to be watching. Well, since you come from uh, both worlds, political and, and financial, um, 
do you think that this is uh, uh, going to be a situation where Republicans are so desperate for a win, it won't matter what's in the bill, they'll just pass something? I think if we're up to the White House, that would be the case, and, and probably even the leadership. They are desperate for a bill, because if they don't get this bill done, and, and perhaps if they don't get this bill done this year, then they could end up going to the 18 elections with nothing. And that is something that terrifies the leadership. The rank and file, they have to worry about their own skins. They're not worried so much about the party skins. Now, let me say one last thing. The Virginia results and all the other results that happened that day could be a watershed here because it was a message and it may well influence a number of Republicans yeah. who are on the edge as to whether to vote for another program that by the time it's over, in my prediction, yeah. will be as unpopular mm-hmm. as their health care plan. Right. And Steve, this is the distrust that Mike brought up on pastors at the beginning. Mike and Steve, if you've got nothing to do this weekend out in East Hampton South, there's a $30 million unit. And the headline here on $30 million is it's 2,800 square feet. Uh, two bedroom, two bath. So the headline here is it's on 3.6 acres, which is how you get out to $30 million. Rob Urban has a phenomenal Bloomberg story how they're already gaming the system. They're going to turn vacation homes into investment properties to get around the legislation. Our audience believes the fancy guys like you and others are going to game the system. Why will that not happen? Uh, it oh, it will happen, and it always happens. And the problem with this tax bill is that, in some ways, it makes it more complicated than less because of the pass-throughs, because of all these rules. And if you really genuinely wanted to reform the tax uh, code, you'd get rid of a lot of this stuff that allows people to game the system. Uh, but they're not doing that. Mike, this property says you, actually. <laughs> it's idyllic. It's an idyllic property. Well, I read the, the when I read the Senate bill last night, my first thought was I should incorporate it as a limited partnership or limited liability corporation and buy a house through the corporation because the state and local tax deduction remains for companies even though individuals lose it. So, I mean, you can see the route to gaming this no. just laid out. We're trying to give you perspective on some of these events, including tax reform now, and really get away from the cliches that are out there. You can do that with Stephen Ratner, Willett Advisors. Michael, why don't you start us off? Well, I was going to ask him uh, a non-tax question because um, I noted the story, and and you had um, Harvard football (laughs) coach on yesterday. Tim Murphy. There's a possibility of a seven-way tie in the eight-team Ivy League in football this year for first place. There's only one team that's winless at the bottom of the conference that cannot possibly tie. Brown University. Now, Brown University graduates, Stephen Ratner is with us. Well, you've done your homework. You know, when I was at Brown, we were pretty much winless. The only team that was worse was Columbia. And so I guess we're right back where we started from. Tom, Tom and I, well, Columbia, three and two. Well, no, I mean, Brown was right back around. where it started from. Yeah. They, have, they have turned things around. Uh, we, we're doing college football today since it's okay, a big weekend. So we thought things. we would we, we get your contribution in there. Uh, Thank you that. for sharing. <laughs> um, the, 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 um, the distinguished journalist uh, John Harwood from the New York Times and a competitor of ours did an interview yesterday with Gary Cohn in which Gary Cohn suggested that the tax reform plan will be a perfect example of trickle-down economics. By helping the rich and businesses, it will mean higher pay for the average worker. From what you've seen, do you think there's any truth to that? 
Well, uh, you know, look, there's a little bit of truth to it, but it's now been hotly debated or relitigated within the economics community for the last few weeks, as you guys have undoubtedly followed and so on. And I think by far the better argument is that the, the is that the share of any kind of corporate tax cut that would actually go to the workers versus go to the capitalists like myself is is very small. This idea that it's going to raise uh, family incomes by $4,000 and all this, I think, has been has been thoroughly and completely proven to be uh, ridiculous. So does it who gets something out of this? Obviously, there's a lot in there for Donald Trump and his family, but who else? Uh, owners of capital get a lot out of this. And if you want to know why the stock market is up 17% or wherever it is at the moment for the year, a lot of this obviously, and part of why it's been weak the last few days, is anticipation of a significant corporate rate cut that would flow right down directly to the EPS line, raise share prices, and those of us who own shares, which is a relatively small fraction of the country, would be a good bit better off. The debate I find extraordinary And it is, to me, a debate of a plutocracy. Are we a national plutocracy? It's interesting, I think, and this is going to sound very partisan, but I think the Republicans have managed to operate as a plutocracy while pretending that they are something else, that they are for the middle class, that they want to help the average American, they want to help the forgotten Trump voter, whatever. But as we saw in health care, people didn't ultimately buy it. And I think in the case of tax reform, as this unfolds, as you get more and more dispassionate, anal- you know, nonpartisan analyses from Tax Policy Center and, and yeah. Committee for Responsible Federal Budget and people like that, I think that uh, the public will figure out that there is nothing in this tax yeah. plan for them of any consequence. Greg Vellier leads us to Zaxios today with a basic idea after Virginia that Republicans are in panic. And there's levels of panic, and I understand Virginia is its own demographics. Can you extrapolate political Virginia to the rest of the Republican nation? Well, I think there's two, I think there's two implications uh, that I'd mentioned. First, uh, as I said earlier, I think they are in panic. I, I think Virginia is not unique. It's, an, it's a, actually a purple state. It's very reflective of the country. And I think this is what happened there, I think, is scary to, to many Republican legislators. And I think it is going to lead them to be more careful in how, yeah. how blindly they simply follow these silly policies. And then secondly... Yes, the House of Representatives is gerrymandered. We all know that. But there have been studies done that if the Democrats get, say, a 3% higher vote share than the Republicans, they could take the House. And right now, if you look at the polls, the public is giving the Democrats a much higher vote share than that. So I think there is, I think there's a better than 50-50 chance that the House flips. And if the House flips, the game changes. When, when as an investor, do you start taking that into account? Look, this is this is you know this is we need an hour for this and it's a very complicated. Well, good, you got forty-two seconds. <laughs> it's very complicated. Make it work. It's very complicated. We've studied this bull market endlessly, and I could argue both sides of it. But yeah, we take it into account. We're being cautious. We're being careful. We're we're not uh, plunging yeah. into into deep water. Steve Ratner, thank you so much. Thanks for the experience. thank you guys. Fun as always. Greatly, greatly yeah. Mike, what did you take out of that? I mean, to me, it's it's. I don't. I still don't understand how they get this done before twelve thirty one seventeen. I, I just can't get there. Can you? Um, well, I think the argument is they, they're so desperate to get something done that they will make compromises they might not otherwise make. The biggest one you got to f- try to figure out how they're going to do is the state and local tax deduction because the Republicans in the House in California, New Jersey, New York, states like that. They can't vote for it. I mean, they're signing their own political death warrant. So how do you compromise yeah. on that and then make up the difference in the money that you lose? Now, I go to Mr. Ratner's comment on 
a $1.5 trillion hole and then even go from there. I mean, how do they how do they get there? They've gotten there in the last 24 hours, I believe. They've modeled out something at $1.45 trillion or something. I'm sure that'll change by the time we end the show today. Michael McKeon for David Gura. I'm Tom Keen. And to be honest, on a November, uh, cold November morning, Michael, it's too late to be the book of the year. But this is without question the lead candidate to be my book of next summer. How Global Currencies Work, Past, Present, and Future. A gentleman of named Harold James at Princeton University just says this could be the new standard. This is the book that everyone on Global Wall Street will be reading in 2018. Mike, you will go on an airplane and up in fancy class, there will be one, two, and three copies of this for needed airplane reading. Eichengreen, Mel, and Chitu, How Global Currencies Work. Barry Eichengreen joins us, the esteemed historian from Berkeley. Barry, how does this book differ from Exorbitant Privilege? How does it differ from your classics, Golden Fetters and Globalizing Capital? Uh Thank you for uh, bringing it to your your audience's attention, Tom. It differs in two ways. Number one, it uh, is more systematic about the evidence. So the the book is full of facts and figures, new ones, both historic and current, about the roles uh, of the the dollar and its rivals. And number two, uh, our views of, of the future have changed. So we're more optimistic about the euro. I think people have been too pessimistic about the prospects of the euro as a global currency. On the other hand, we're more guarded or cautious about the Chinese renminbi. Your book has a cover of an E. Howard watch company, Boston, Massachusetts. I'm going to say an ancient movement of a, of a pocket watch. Is it a well-running Swiss watch system? Does the system work? Well, the system is still ticking. <laughs> um, I think uh, we have to worry about the stability of the mechanism. Um, Things could go wrong to undermine confidence in the dollar from another debt ceiling imbroglio to uh, foreign policy problems between the U.S. and its allies. Uh, I do think the euro has put the worst behind it, but the Chinese still have big challenges in terms of currency internationalization that they haven't solved and how the world will cope with three with multiple global currencies. Uh, only time will tell. How being, how, how's the world been coping so far? I mean, the Chinese got into the, uh, to, to the SDR basket at the IMF last year. Doesn't seem to have made a whole lot of difference. As near as I can tell, the amount of renminbi traded um, has gone down uh, over the last year. You're right, Michael, that it's still a dollar-centered, dollar-centric world that the renminbi has made negative progress, if you will, not only in terms of foreign exchange trading, but on every other metric of uh, global currency-ness. The Chinese haven't yet built deep and liquid markets. Uh, The overnight uh, announcement about bank internationalization will help, but it won't solve that problem at a stroke. And they have a big problem in terms of stability. The market is volatile and confidence that 
people inevitably have questions about contract enforcement and rule of law in China. What do you think of the um, decision today by the Chinese to open up to the, the, the their financial system to outsiders? Is that going to materially change the use of the renminbi or are people still going to want to just um, convert uh, because uh, capital controls you know they can't trust the chinese you can put bring your money in but you might not be able to bring it back out i don't think it will materially change anything in the short run it will take time for foreign banks to come in and purchase majority stakes that fact will take more time to change the, the behavior of the banks and how they relate to the state and to state-owned enterprises. So uh, the experience of other countries has shown that foreign bank presence is a good thing. It's a stabilizing thing that helps with market liquidity and stability, but not overnight. Well, then... Um how soon, or you know, do we at all see uh, the Chinese currency gain enough market share that we talk about it seriously as a third uh, global reserve currency? If you'd uh, asked me six or seven years ago when I uh, put out that book, Exorbitant Privilege, I would have probably hazarded the guess of within a, within a decade. I'm more guarded now. I think it will take a generation before the renminbi begins to yeah. play the kind of global role that the dollar does. Barry Eichengreen with us, the professor of Berkeley, right down the hall from Brad DeLong, how global currencies work, past, present, and future. How often do you run into Brad DeLong? Are you like two ships passing in the night, or are you having coffee every morning arguing with each other? No, we pass mainly in the hallway in the seminar room. But um, Brad ducks into my office. That's not an argument, but it's a long uh, discussion. So that's really one of the, the pleasures of being yeah. an academic. We have time, and we have those <clears throat> colleagues. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Barry, uh, with the question that Mike had there on, on what we're doing with the dollar, where do we stand on our fiscal moment in this United States? You know, uh, Reagan deficit, 40% of GDP. Now we're out past 100% of GDP. It depends how you measure it, folks. But we piled on a lot of debt. Does that give pause to Barry Eichengreen? It, it gives me great pause. I'm not a believer that there is some threshold level of debt like 90% of GDP after which you, you reach a tipping point. But I, I, I do think we need to be worried about the longer-term fiscal projections put out by the CBO and others about Social Security liabilities, about state and local pension liabilities. So given that, given that we're in a near full employment economy, now is not the time to be cutting taxes and incurring another $1.5 trillion of debt. There's a an argument made that that 90% level um, came out of the book, this time it's different, uh, by Ken Rogoff um, and company, uh, that uh, the U.S. is sort of exempt from that. We're, we're the exception to the rule because the there's no economy like us and we have the world's reserve currency do you, do you put much credence in that is that part of the reason you are less worried i think we do have more room to run because we have this additional source of demand for our treasury bonds which is foreign central banks and global investors until we get to the point where that demand yeah. dries up in a, in a confidence crisis. So we're not exempt from the eventual confidence crisis if, if we court it. 
Barry Eichengreen with us as we celebrate, uh, as he mentioned, a, a detailed book, a dense book, and I mean that in a good way, How Global Currencies Work, Past, Present, and Future. To give you the idea of the scope and scale, Professor Eichengreen and his team opened with Angus Madison and uh, Mr. Kindleberger, Charles Kindleberger of MIT, uh, two of the giants of the history of all the stuff we talk about. Uh, and it is really just an immediate read as he goes from currency uh, to currency prospects for the renminbi, uh, the role of currencies in foreign trade, which maybe, Mike, is something we can talk about. We are with Barry Eichengreen of Berkeley, truly in celebration of how global currencies work past, present, and future. Barry, on quantitative tightening, you're lecturing at Berkeley right now. What does that phrase mean if we have a move from QA are we going to uh, something like quantitative tightening? If we uh, were about to see the, the Fed and other central banks actively shrinking their balance sheets and selling securities they hold into the markets, then yes, I think we would worry about uh, quantitative tightening, tightening and big negative impacts on securities markets. But the fact of the matter is they're simply allowing uh, securities to roll over their, roll off their portfolios as they mature, and they're not actively selling into the market. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't panic at this point. And Mike, that's what Ben Bernanke says. Yeah. Um, there is still some concern, though, about, you know, we saw rates come down when uh, the Fed was buying security. So why shouldn't rates go up when they are no longer buying them and to a certain extent probably uh, selling them? Well, the Fed stopped uh, buying quite some time ago. Now they're, you know, they're talking about balance sheet reduction. Uh, and the issue is, are they going to do it actively or passively? And f for all intents and purposes, the answer is passively. So you're not worried about uh, rates moving higher or in a de destabilizing manner? I don't think the Fed would be the trigger for them uh, moving higher. If there was news about the labor market, for example, yeah. and wages began to take off, that would be a different story. Yeah. But the Fed would not be the trigger for that. Professor, we have models that we've all learned, and, and some like you have learned them better than and most everyone else. I'll go back to Hicks' ISLM model, just as one classic economic system, maybe Marshall of 120 years ago. Did those models work now? Or is Barry Eichengreen's international system become so supple, so rapid, so fast, that the traditional models just don't work? We really had a wake-up call in 2007, 2008, that the models work imperfectly. I would defend those old-school models as pretty, pretty much still the best thing going, but I uh, would be reluctant to... Uh, hang my hat on them. I think progress is being made through big data and computation and applying microeconomic data to macroeconomic questions. So that's a different kind of modeling. I'm wondering, um, we, we, we were just talking about, uh, we were kidding. Well, not kidding, but we're talking about Shohei Otani, the Japanese baseball player. But I'm wondering, it has been wondering about the yen uh, at this point. The president was just over there and he's talking with uh, Shinzo Abe. And you know, it just seems like Japan is treading water. Um, they don't get any better. They don't get any worse. 
their personal, uh, you know, their uh, per capita GDP gets a little bit better, so people remain uh, relatively happy. And yet, um, the yen still is one of the most used currencies in the world, and it is everybody's outside of the dollar favorite haven. Does that continue over the long term? We were talking about, you know, what happens with the renminbi. Does the yen continue to be play the role that it has played? If there ultimately is the um, the Japanese debt crisis that some people have been betting on in that widowmaker trade for decades now, then the yen falls out of favor. But I think if Japan continues to cruise along under the radar where they grow decently, given their demographics, where uh, uh, the central bank does begin to bring inflation up toward 2%, then I think the uh, yen remains where it is, not the leading global currency, but one of the players. Barry, thank you so much. Professor Ike Green, folks, out with a jewel with Arno Mill and Livia Shitu. How, how global currencies work, past, present, and future. There's two kind of Ike and Green books. There's sort of a thicker wandering book, which are fabulous. They're all great books. And then there are, this is a new addition to that series of shorter, denser, 200-page jewels with an emphasis on the word denser. And the reason people read these is you learn something every three pages. It's written that tightly. And you see that, Michael McKeon, how global currencies work. I hate Michael Barr. I hate Barry Eichengreen because instead of watching Lions-Browns, <laughs> I have to read how global currencies work this weekend. Well, you, you can read the book because all you need is like a quarter to just, see the Lions. You'd see the Lions and I can watch it with a sound off and yeah. maybe I'll yeah. get through it. Barry Eichengreen, thank you so much. How global currencies work. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.